the relationship between the violence, the organizing, the propaganda, the speech writing, the financing, the traveling, it's all very tied to very organized violence. Later life, aside from saying it was the stupidest thing I've ever done, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit for saying, how do you expiate guilt? You know, that's, that's a good apology. You know, he, he knew, he knew his guilt and he basically had to turn his life around. And that's what led him back to Harvard Graduate School to just learn how to be an architect. He had sort of stumbled by wanting to be influential. Welcome to Journey with Purpose. This is episode 15. Today, we're going to wrestle with two separate and interconnected things. A complicated man who made some very poor choices and an artifact he created, which has global impact. Today, we're speaking about Philip Johnson and his glass house. Now, Philip Johnson is a complicated figure. By all accounts, he was a brilliant social gadfly. He was incredibly rich. And by his own admission, through his writings during the interwar years, he supported fascist and anti-Semitic causes. And many parts of the U.S. government were afraid that he was a secret Nazi agent. Now, we aren't going to go through all the ins and outs of the background on this. Mark Lamster has an amazing book. It's called The Man in the Glass House, which goes deeper into this. I think this is a fascinating subject because we have to square the circle of this brilliant man who for 10 years organized, funded, financially supported, and piled around with American fascists, anti-Semites, and with Nazis. What I find encouraging is that the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which both owns and operates the Glass House and the Edith Farnsworth House, which we talked about in the last episode, they don't hide the complicated history of either building. And in the glass house itself, they openly talk and wrestle with Philip Johnson's past. And in fact, they use this history to teach and to guard against the rise of contemporary fascism and anti-Semitism in America. So we have a little bit of a dual mandate today. To begin with, we're going to speak with Gwen North Reese about both the house and Philip Johnson. Hey, Gwen, thanks for coming on the pod. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about Philip Johnson? My name is Gwen North Reese, and I am speaking to you from New Canaan, Connecticut, where I work at the Glass House part-time as an uh, educator. It was 1906 that he was born in Cleveland, Ohio. He majored in um, philosophy and the classics at Harvard. He, he came from a family that was sort of middle-class, well-to-do, but not super wealthy. But his father was an attorney who did a lot of startup work for companies, which in those days basically involved getting patents. And Homer and Louise Johnson decided to give their children, Philip and two sisters, an inheritance when they were late teens and about 20 so they could use it for their educations or for travel. And they gave the girls cash and real estate, which seemed very safe. And they decided that Philip could just fend for himself. And so he got some stock certificates from his father that his father had been given just as payment. Those stock certificates were from a company we now know as Alcoa. The patent had been for the modern manufacturing process for aluminum from bauxite ore, which hadn't been done before. So he suddenly, within a short time, was a millionaire. And this was in the 20s when a million dollars was enormous wealth. 
His father was even shocked that by the time he was an undergraduate at Harvard, he had that wealth. So it was this wealth that catapulted him into an upper echelon because he was then able to attend Harvard and really bankroll his own position at the Museum of Modern Art. Can you speak a little bit about this, please? When he finished his bachelor's degree, he went to MoMA and he said, if you will let me be the architecture curator, I will pay my own salary and I'll pay my assistant's salary. So that's how he got he got started. And it was the first architecture department at any major museum. MoMA did it first. So he immediately got working on several things and his famous exhibition, the 1932 International Style Show, introduced the European modernists to the American art scene. And of course, there were American modernists involved in it too. And, and Frank Lloyd Wright, for sure, was part of that show. He just went through so many hoops to make that happen with all the personalities involved and all the work involved. And that became such an important landmark in the architecture world and the art world. During his time as curator of architecture at the Museum of Modern Art, he put on some amazing shows that had deep impact in both the art and architecture worlds. One of the shows was in 1932. It was called International Style, Modern Architecture Since 1922. It introduced us to designers such as Mies van der Rohe, to Gropius, to Le Corbusier, and really started to create this pantheon of mid-century modern designers who are frankly really only male architects, which we haven't been able to shake to today. But then things went sideways. Gwen, can you tell us a little bit about what happened in 1932-1934? And, and then a few years later, he was at MoMA for a while. By 1934, he had a sort of disastrous digression into politics. He was back and forth to Germany during the time when he was getting to know a lot of the Bauhaus architects. And as a young gay man, he probably fell in love with the freedoms in Berlin. He was taken in by his own admission, by the spectacle of the rabid nationalism of the Nazi party. And he ended up promoting fascist politics in the U.S. by becoming a correspondent for Father Coughlin's magazine, Social Justice. And Father Coughlin was just a rabidly anti-Semitic priest who was promoting fascism. His friend and mentor at MoMA, Alfred Barr, argued vehemently with him, always reminding him that the Nazis were a threat to artists and art. So this was a disaster. Well, when you look into this history, you can really see that this is a little bit more than just a disaster. I think it's really important to remember in 1932, when Johnson left MoMA, he was cavorting with funding and supporting homegrown fascists like Huey Long and Father Coughlin. And he was starting his own version of the brown shirts, the gray shirts. He was 26 years old. He was independently wealthy. He graduated from Harvard. He was well-connected. He started the first architecture program at a major museum, curated some of the most important pre-war architectural exhibits ever. He wasn't a kid. This wasn't some wayward lost weekend. He was an adult making adult choices. To that end, I wanted to dig deeper into what some other views of Philip Johnson were. I spoke with members of the Johnson Study Group, a multidisciplinary group of people who are urging us to rethink Philip Johnson, his work, and the organizations that both he supported and supported him. Welcome to the pod. Please introduce yourself. 
Hello, I'm one of the co-founders of the Johnson Study Group. If nothing else, I think the Johnson Study Group wants to invite folks in the U.S. especially to consider the ways that the built environment and architecture might be complicit in some of the most extreme forms of violence in the last century, and that there's work that we need to do to make sure that that's not the case in this one. So I'd really like to understand your group's point of view on Philip Johnson, since Again, I'm having a really hard time squaring contemporaneous accounts of his writing and his choices that, frankly, seem pretty anti-Semitic and the actions he undertook and participated in with some of the artifacts he later created. Can you tell us how your group can help us contextualize that or how we should think about that? If Hitler had lived, we wouldn't have cared about his paintings if he had gone back to them. I think there's so much deference to this figure, which that indicates how much deference we have to wealth. The relationship between the violence, the organizing, the propaganda, the speech writing, the financing, the traveling, it's all very tied to very organized violence. But when folks are pointing this out in the FBI file in a contemporaneous way, the FBI continuously reviews its own documents and then says, well, he comes from this wealthy family in Ohio, so it must all be fine. And effectively, it, it gives a sense of like the kind of default way that we acknowledge or don't acknowledge violence in this country. There's a sense that if someone is polite and well-educated and wealthy, then whatever they're organized, whatever they're doing and discussing and paying for and organizing, however they're tied to that violence, has to be somehow subsumed. So this, this discussion about like him as a man or what to think of him, to me is already a kind of a symptom that's similar to the, the FBI's failure. Okay. I think we have to stop here for a second. Now, the, the inflammatory question is, was Philip Johnson a Nazi? So Johnson's writing during this period we're talking about really focused and promoted anti-Semitic pro-German political stances. Philip Johnson was a columnist for Father Coughlin's Social Justice it was a notoriously anti-Semitic newspaper that reprinted Nazi speeches essentially unchanged under Coughlin's name, as well as republished the protocols of the elders of Zion and defended the Nazis after Kristallnacht. In a social justice article published in July of 1939, Philip Johnson writes, quote, The lack of leadership and direction in the French state has let one group get control who always gain power in a nation's time of weakness, the Jews, end quote. This isn't the only example of it. There's a set of really horrible racial suicide tropes that he wrote about in 1932. And it's pretty easy to connect what the Nazis were saying, what Johnson was writing about, what Father Coughlin was writing about, what fascists were writing about at that time and really draw a line to what, say, the Proud Boys and the really far-right neo-fascists are saying today. In the end, we'll really never know the answer of how deep Philip Johnson stepped into the abyss. Man is no longer here. But it's clear from both the FBI file and by research that he supported both anti-Semitic causes and was a supporter of even if indirectly, Nazi causes. He made multiple trips to Germany starting in the 1930s and was a guest in the Nazi regime from 1937 onwards. 
He was meeting with Nazi officials well into September of 1940. And I like to really remind people of the timeline here. The Nazis carried out Kristallnacht in 1938. The Nazis invaded Poland in September 1939, and Johnson was a guest of the regime to see part of this invasion. Then the Nazis invaded Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France in 1940. He was still meeting with them around this time. Now, eventually, Philip Johnson realized that backing the Nazi regime was really backing the wrong horse. We don't know how he came to that conclusion, and Mark Lamster's book can only theorize why. I don't know if he had a Saul to Paul revelation and he atoned for it. I don't know if he was just seeing the winds of change blow and decided to back a winning horse. By all accounts throughout the rest of his life, he was a bit of a leaf on the wind, flowing from this way to that way. But again, we don't know. We can only look back at what other people heard and said and look at his writings and look at his actions. We can look at his FBI file, which is 150 some odd pages long. We can analyze historical record. Again, here's Gwen North Reese on Philip Johnson. By the time he understood the truth of his situation, he, he just had to start his life all over again. He turned back to architecture, which was his great love. He went back to school to learn how to become an architect. He was actually drafted into the army in 1943 when he was finishing his graduate school degree because obviously the war was still on. He was drafted in 1943, and because of this record and because of the FBI files, he was not allowed to be an officer. His close friend, Landis Glories, who's one of the New Canaan architects, was fluent in German. And Landis went to Bletchley Park and was one of the group that helped break the, the Nazi code during World War II. So his close friends and colleagues were doing all of these things, but they did not allow him to be an officer or even an interrogator. He was basically doing cleaning and training routines, and he was prevented from, from having anything to do with the army in, a, in an upper echelon. So in the end, the FBI could never charge him with any material support in the Nazi regime. And it's kind of beside the point. Mark Lamster's biography really details Johnson's constant support of the Nazis and a growing awareness by the U.S. government about Johnson and his support and their fear that he was a covert Nazi agent. There's even a memo from J. Edgar Hoover asking field agents about who this Johnson guy was. Key parts of the U.S. government were looking into this matter and focused on him and his activities. Now, I asked the Johnson study group about this and how they would like us to think about Johnson and his work and his impact. And they had this statement. Johnson's commitment to white supremacy, white supremacy, not power, white supremacy was significant and consequential. He used his curatorial work as a pretense to collaborate with the German Nazi party, including personally translating propaganda disseminating Nazi publications, and forming an affiliated fascist party in Louisiana. He effectively segregated the architectural collection at MoMA, were under his leadership from 1933 through 1988. Not a single work by any Black architect or designer was included in the collection. He not only acquiesced in, but added to the persistent practice of racism in the field of architecture, a legacy that continues to do harm today. Now, we reached out to the Museum of Modern Art through both back channels and official channels. We haven't received anything back from them for this podcast. That's okay. We're a tiny fish. 
Now, publicly, in the end of 2020 and around 2021, they, through popular press, had intimated that they were going to reassess Philip Johnson and his place in the museum. So far, I haven't seen anything that's come from it and come out publicly, which doesn't really surprise me. The man literally created a curatorial wing of MoMA. He was so intertwined through both the curatorial end of MoMA, but also the man was a trustee. He was friends of the Rockefellers. So it's going to take time. I'm going to assume good, and I'm going to hope that MoMA can use this moment as really a teaching opportunity so that we can understand these amazing artifacts and square it with someone who made some really bad choices. Now, you might remember from the last episode about the Edith Farnsworth House, we spoke with architectural historian Nora Wendell about how we should think about history and people and the artifacts and specifically around Philip Johnson. And how should we tell that story? Hey, Nora, thanks for coming back on the pod. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Nora Wendell. I am an associate professor of architecture at the University of New Mexico, the executive editor of the Journal of Architectural Education. When we last spoke about the Edith Farnsworth House, I was really inspired by your request that people can handle the complexity of the whole story. In this case, in the Glass House and Philip Johnson's actions in the 1930s and early 1940s, seems a little bit more serious. How would you guide us in dealing with Philip Johnson and his legacy? I think you tell it all. I think you, you make it all visible. You make it all apparent. I think that's the only way. I think you have to tell the entire story and maybe tell it from multiple perspectives. It's so important that we know everything we know about Philip Johnson right now. And I'm sure we don't know it all yet. There will be more to be known. And it's so important that it's all coming to light. I think it's so important that it's being written about. I think, I think the public can handle that. I think the public actually really wants to know the entire story. There are so many problematic histories of architecture that if, if you don't tell the whole story, then you're really just telling propaganda. And I think the tide has really turned against that. Nobody really has time for propaganda anymore. It doesn't educate. It doesn't serve anybody. So the more complete the history is, the better. And so what do we do here? What sort of atonement, apologies are we owed or that Philip Johnson gave? Michael Sorkin, an amazing architectural critic and educator, wrote in 1988 that, quote, there's never been an apology from Johnson, not publicly at any rate. However, apology or no, he has been forgiven, end quote. I don't know if he's been forgiven. I know in the last couple of years, there have been a great reassessment of Philip Johnson and his decisions. So I'd like to give Gwen North Reese of the Glass House more space to help us understand what Johnson did after the war. He went to the Anti-Defamation League in New York and formally apologized. And then in the years after that, in the 50s, he designed a synagogue for the Kinesis Tiferitz congregation in Port Chester. He also designed a nuclear reactor for Israel. And what he said about this very soon after, or in, and, and again in later life, aside from saying it was the stupidest thing I've ever done, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit for saying, how do you expiate guilt? You know, that's, that's a good apology. You know, he, he knew, he knew his guilt and he basically had to chain, turn his life around. And that's what led him back to, to Harvard graduate school to just learn how to be an architect. He had sort of stumbled by wanting to be influential. 
So now we're going to shift a little bit away from the man and his actions to the artifact itself. So we're going to rewind a little bit to around the end of the war. So Johnson set out the end of the war in what Mark Lamster calls a glorified prison, which was a army base in the hills of Maryland. The U.S. Armed Forces were very wary of Philip Johnson. He wasn't an officer like a lot of his Harvard colleagues were. He was basically cleaning the latrines as a lowly enlisted soldier. But this gave him time and access to both the high society of Washington, D.C., and gave him time to dream up the new house, the Glass House. The Glass House is a 49-acre site, and we're a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, as is the Farnsworth House. The site includes seven buildings and several architectural follies and structures, all designed by Philip Johnson. There are also three older houses that date from the 1700s to the early 1900s, and those were just houses that were on the site. Philip Johnson started with five acres in 1946. He bought a small piece of land, and that was the piece where the glass house, brick house, and the little pavilion on the pond now sit. And over the years, he bought contiguous properties whenever they became available. So there were probably something like 12 different purchases over his lifetime. When he had enough land, he would build another building. He loved English country house landscape and classical landscape paintings. So what he wanted when he had enough land was to have a driveway that showed you vistas of his meadows. He was constantly taking out second and third growth trees. Connecticut was once all cleared farmland. So he was always preserving the mature trees and taking out the smaller growth and creating meadows. It's really hard to create meadows in Connecticut because the soil is just full of rocks. It's our, it's our major crop here. He said, I'm from Ohio. I wanted to have meadows. What he was really up to was a single composition. This is not something maybe that he had in mind in the 40s, but as he bought more and more land, the entire place is a composition of landscape and architecture. He often said that I'm a better landscape architect than I am an architect. And he really felt that landscape and architecture, that there was no line drawn between them, that they were one art. Gwen, can you tell us a little bit about craftsmanship? Because we know from the last episode about the Farnsworth House, we heard a lot about Mies van der Rohe's obsession around craft and perfection. Can you tell us a little bit about what Philip Johnson's view of craft was in the glass house? Johnson certainly respected craftsmanship, and I don't think he held other views, but it is more that he was always trying to experiment. So sometimes he was just trying to figure out how he was going to build a building. He didn't know when he started. And that's true of all of his buildings. We often think of the glass house as the 50-year diary. He called it his diary. It basically runs through so many of the trends in 20th century architecture, including postmodernism. And if you look at what's there, look at these buildings. We have high modernism, classical architectural follies, an underground berm building, this painting gallery, the sculpture gallery, which is inspired by a Mediterranean village, which is often thought of as his best building. It's impossible to describe. You have to see it. And then the library inspired by Islamic architecture, Damansta, his deconstructivist buildings. He was certainly always looking at the next thing on the horizon in architecture. 
Now, Gwen, can you help us imagine if we're walking up the walk of the glass house, what it's like to be on site and as we walk towards the glass house? When you're on that drive, before you get to, to the middle of the drive, while you're up at the top of the street, off to the left, you're going to see the little deconstructivist red and black building that was actually his last building on the site done in 1995. It's inspired by an architectural model done by Frank Stella. He built it after he had already donated the, the place to the National Trust. And he thought, well, maybe we could use it as a place for a video or a small exhibition of smaller sculptures or paintings or just a place maybe for a shop, which we didn't do because we have a visitor center that people have to go to first. But, but we do use it every year for something different. And often we've used it as a video or a small exhibition. So you see that off to the, the left. On the right, you see an older, the older building at the street, which he called Popestead. His mother's maiden name was Pope, and they often stayed there when they visited. And then you're down at what was the original little driveway parking area for the glass house. That didn't change. You see the brick house to your right and the glass house to your left. There's a diagonal path and a triangular pattern that goes to both of them. So when the glass house first opened to visitors a long time ago, I was able to actually tour the grounds and the brick house surprised me. Can you tell us a little bit about the glass and the brick houses? The glass house and the brick house are separate pieces, but they are both part of the original. They were the essential original 1949 design. And here's where Mies comes into the discussion. Johnson and Mies discussed the idea of designing a glass house as early as 1945. And Mies had his Farnsworth house completely designed on paper by 1947. And Johnson saw those sketches. I should say it was more than sketches. It was fully designed. And he had purchased his land in New Canaan in 46. Johnson decided not to have the brick house at an L with the glass house. He decided to move it over so that there was a courtyard space between them. So not only was he inspired by Mises Farnsworth house to, to push the brick house away and keep the singular glass pavilion by itself, but also it became in his mind a courtyard design. You're, you're looking at this little courtyard with green grass and it's the only part of the property that we mow every week in the summer. It's otherwise, we let the meadow grass grow. If you come in time for the summer party that we usually have in June, the grass on the meadows is up to your hip level. We have a lot of pollinator pathway plants and butterflies coming through. And that was always the case. He would let the meadows grow. When I went on the tour many years ago, I saw those meadows that you talk about, but I also saw these beautiful stone walls. Can you talk about those? The stone walls, actually, I, I should have mentioned that as part of the site because that was part of the reason that Johnson bought the property in New Canaan. He loved the old stone walls. We're pretty sure the property that the glass house is on was once a dairy farm. And so it had all these little, little meadow areas with the stone walls around them. And you can see them when you're when you're at the glass house, either in the early spring or late fall after the leaves come down, and you can really see this enormous network of stone walls from the western promontory of the glass house. So in another episode, we discussed the Edith Farnsworth House by Mies. That was designed well before Philip Johnson's glass house. But he saw it and put it in a few exhibits at MoMA. Now, both houses are obviously connected 
both men are connected together. They're friends, they're competitors, they're collaborators, they're kind of frenemies. They're going to collaborate in the future on a couple of projects, including the Seagram's building. But right now, when the glass house is under construction and built, the Farnsworth house is still on a sheet of paper. Can you help us compare and contrast the two houses? The Farnsworth house was completed in 1951. The glass house was completed in 1949. So if you're just looking at a list of dates, it seems like the glass house came first, but it's not so. It was the Farnsworth house in concept that came first, and Johnson looked at that and modified his design. The Farnsworth house is really the forerunner here. And when you look at the two buildings, I mean, Johnson was very much trying to do very much what Mies was trying to do, but he ended up with something completely different. His classical background, um, he studied philosophy and the classics at Harvard as an undergraduate. He loved the ancient world. All of his love of classicism comes through in the glass house structure. It is solidly on the ground like a Greek temple. It's entirely symmetrical. Each of the four doors is in the middle of the walls. And in fact, that became his air conditioning. He would open up all the doors and you'd get the cross breeze. The Farnsworth house floats above the ground and it's asymmetrical. And both of those things are much more in the vein of Le Corbusier, Mises' other work, Breuer, the European modernists who were interested in having a space that, that floated above the ground. The Farnsworth house is also white. It's the beautiful object in the landscape. And the glass house steel is painted black and it kind of disappears almost like a movie screen. The view is everything. And as he continued to buy land around the, the, pro the original property, he would joke, Johnson would always joke that he had, he would say, I have expensive wallpaper. Now, I know the Farnsworth house is basically a giant sheet of glass, but the glass house has this little, you know, rail partway up. Can you talk about that? The other thing about the two houses, and it's just a tiny detail, but the glass house has a structure that has something that looks a lot like a chair rail in the walls. And that chair rail makes you read the walls of the glass house as glass walls. At the Farnsworth house, that space between the floor plane and the ceiling plane reads as floating space. So beautiful. And so they were doing different things there. Architect Peter Eisenman always liked to bring up that detail as a very telling one and something that really showed you the difference between the two, even though Johnson was trying to do something similar to what Mies was doing. That's always important. And we always try to mention that the Farnsworth house is always front of mind at the glass house. So as the glass house was being completed, can you tell us a little bit about what Mies was doing around then? And can you tell us a little bit about how Mies and Johnson interacted? He simply said, my debt to Mies is clear. You know, he could go on forever, but that was, you know, that was a, that was a strong statement. He loved simple, pure ge geometric shapes. In fact, the whole site is rectangles, circles, triangles. You can find them everywhere. There's a swimming pool that he added in 1955 that's a perfect circle, as is the Donald Judd sculpture, which is on the other side of the brick house. I've heard one architecture professor who came to visit say something about how anybody could have done this just to build a simple rectangular structure, all glass, but Johnson did it. It was just a matter of following through with such a pure idea, and he did it. 
once you make that decision, you have to figure out, okay, how you're going to do the structure. You put the steel I-beams, they are the columns, the posts in the corner, and the glass comes right to them. They're not pulled in. The Farnsworth house, the structure is pulled in a little bit, which helps give you that feeling of the building floating above that river plane. The glass house, the steel posts are exactly at the edge. The whole structure is the exterior walls. With the help of a little cylindrical piece in the middle that encloses the bathroom, the one room where you really need to have some privacy. And the other side of that brick cylinder is a fireplace that he used all the time. And sometimes when he was standing in front of it, he would say, well, when I stand in front of this fireplace, that what I did here was I redesigned my grandfather's farmhouse in No London, Ohio, because there was in the center hall, there's a big fireplace. And so that's what he felt like he had done. Love for you to help us understand why he designed the glass house as it was and some of the thinking behind it. And I think he just... He designed it just to have everything he needed. He was a single gay man. He didn't have a family to worry about. David Whitney was part of his life starting in 1960. They were partners um, until their deaths in, in 2005. Their deaths were unrelated, which just happened to be the same year. You know, he designed just what, what he needed for himself. He had an apartment in New York, so it wasn't like it was his only place, although it became his main house as he got older. Early on, maybe in the 50s, there was a woman who who said, well, I don't know if I could live here. And his answer was, madam, I haven't asked you. So the, it was really just what he needed. And I think more than half of the people who come through now on our public tours look around and are so delighted and they, they think maybe they could live there. And it's very expansive. You know, most open plan places have the living room furniture might be sort of sidled in next to the dining room furniture, but there's a huge space between that dining table and the Barcelona chairs. You could almost put another room in. So that it seems very generous. Earlier in this podcast, we went over Philip Johnson's history of poor choices in the 30s and early 40s. How do we deal with the glass house as an artifact, along with all the other buildings on the site and that he designed later in life? What sort of guidance can you give us to think about this? How does the National Trust think about this? How do we deal with this at the glass house? We talk about it. It's the policy and just practice of the National Trust and everyone at the glass house that these sites have to serve as places for learning and truth telling. The Glass House engages in a frank dialogue about its history and Philip Johnson's history. And these are valuable things. We have a grant right now from the Martyr Vaughn Center for, for Historic Sites. And this grant program is specifically for National Trust sites. And it helps fund this wonderful teacher at New Canaan High School who's both a lawyer and a historian. And she teaches history. So she's doing a unit on fascism, and she's having the kids dive deep into Philip Johnson's life. And she's having them at the end of the semester answer questions like, okay, what do we do with Philip Johnson? Do we cancel him? You know, what do we do with great people who have contributed so much culturally, but who are flawed and who, in Johnson's case, it was something that happened 
when he was younger that he turned away from completely. It was not a youthful error that, yeah, no, that's, I mean, if you're, if you're 17, that's one thing. And he was also a very smart 28 year old. He was drawn to, he wanted to be influential and he was, he was in many arenas, but I think that that may be one of the things that pushed him into the political world and he wasn't looking at it in depth enough. I think that when you try to grapple with this, it helps to understand European history from the 1930s. That's where you could maybe begin to understand how this happened. You know, he, he never made any excuses for it. Now, other organizations besides MoMA and the Glass House and the National Trust are dealing with Philip Johnson's legacy. Some of them are choosing to remove his name. This happened at Harvard, where they renamed the house that Philip Johnson built for his graduate thesis. It was originally named the Philip Johnson Thesis House, and they recently renamed it to Nine Ash Street. How has the Glass House and the National Trust thought about both naming, about glorifying, and commemorating this person? It's not that simple for us. I understand taking the names off. A name is an honor. To have a name on a room or a building is an honor. And of course, that person is always part of your history. But at the Glass House, this is his home. Everything is about him and David Whitney, his partner, who was a curator. I mean, I shouldn't say it's just about him because actually we talk about David Whitney quite a lot and his influence in the modern art world. For Johnson, we just have to spell it out and tell the full story and truth telling. And it's more interesting. It's interesting that way. Here's the thing. What's good about discussing the truth about these historic sites and the people who built them or owned them is fascism is on the horizon again. It's there. And so it's very valuable to look at these things and see where things went wrong. Here's historian Nora Wendell again. When you tell a more complete history that's real, you get away from the sort of characterizing of people and you tell the story of these people as human beings who were complicated, made terrible decisions, had very problematic worldviews, and also made these structures. And so if you tell that complete history and, and think more completely and complexly about the past and its, and its implications in the present, I think that's why it's so important to tell the complete story as much as you can. It's a reminder that these evils don't actually go away. They continue to be repeated over and over and over until we can somehow learn our lesson or we can stand against people in positions of power who are perpetrating absolute horrors. I really want to thank Gwen North-Reese for her time in helping us both visualize the house and give us context around Johnson's life. I want to thank the Johnson Study Group for pushing us to think in a different way about Philip Johnson. I want to thank Nora Wendell, who is giving us and asking us to see the whole story. And I really want to thank the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Now, the National Trust has, has both made people available for interview for both the Farnsworth House and the Glass House episodes, but also they've openly said, we want you to tell the whole complicated story. And I want to give them kudos because this is an incredibly hard thing to deal with. 
You have these amazing artifacts created by somebody who really made not great decisions. I think Philip Johnson made some really bad choices. And I think he got away with a lot of those choices. And I think part of that has to do with his connections, with his wealth. And I think a lot of people chose to ignore his history, which even in the late 80s was pretty well known. They either ignored it because they wanted to or they had no other choice. So this isn't about canceling Philip Johnson. The man is no longer here. You can't cancel him. But I think we can reappraise him and recontextualize his actions, who he supported, what he did, because it's important to understand how someone with such wealth, intellect, connections, and really just everything was going right in his life. He chose fascism. He chose to run around with people who are deeply anti-Semitic. It's confounding. It's confounding because I live in New York. I see his work all over the place. I want to thank you for listening because we have to have this context. We have to continue to understand where this came from because Philip Johnson's legacy continues with us today, not only in the artifacts throughout the world, but in the writings, the curatorial choices he made in the organizations that he was part of. I find it encouraging that the National Trust for Historic Preservation doesn't hide Philip Johnson's past and uses it as an educational tool to look at the past as a way to guard against the rise of contemporary fascism and contemporary anti-Semitic movements that we see today. This is super important stuff. It's just not buildings. It's just not some guy. These things are alive and we have to challenge them. This is Journey with Purpose. I'm your host, Randy Plummel. The views from me, from the guests, are of their own. They do not reflect the views of our employers, but you knew that. Please go listen to the other episode about the Dr. Edith Farnsworth House by Mies. Please go on jwp.news to buy some pamphlets, to listen to more podcast episodes. We really appreciate all your support, liking, sharing, funding, all these things are important as an artistic endeavor. We thank you and I will see you on the internets. Mm -hmm.